Abby. And I'm Allie. And it's about time for True Crime. Hey. Hi. Happy 100th. Happy 100th. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just, I'm just excited. Yes, I'm so excited. Can you believe we've done 100 of these? In a way that I, I can. And then yes. in the other more dominant way, I absolutely cannot. <laughs> On one hand, I know exactly what you're talking about. But on a much more realistic note, I have no idea what you're talking about. Correct. Yep. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like we've been doing this always yeah. for years. But at the same time, it's crazy to have episodes. Because we were having these conversations no matter what, right? Yeah. We oh were gosh. just geeking out about true crime over <laughs> breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But it's incredible now to have a community and have you guys write to us and we're all at the same table yeah it's also really cool i think that you can hear all of the differences and how much we've grown over the last you know year and a half yeah i don't too. think i think for my own mental health i'm not gonna listen to the first no few. <laughs> you guys if you've been with us that long thank you. you you guys are the real mvps you guys have been there for the range you knew that we needed to get into our groove we love and appreciate you for it you and stuck I th- with us through the chair squeaks I think there'll be a time I'll go back and I'll think, okay, like that was really cute and that yeah. was really nice and I'm glad that we've gotten to where we are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just proud. I'm proud of all you me guys. Too. We're, we're so grateful for you and it's going to make me cry. I know. What a good little family we got. I know. You guys, I'm just a hundred. One hundred. One zero Three digits. That's. <sighs> That's so many hours of it's research so you guys <laughs> it's so many hours of so research. many late nights so many early mornings so many um triple quadruple run-throughs of episodes to edit before we post oh and you guys have been Ugh. there through it all we're we're kissing all your little noses and booping all your little faces i know give your pets a big smooch right on the face from us oh we love all the pod pets and send us pictures of them please please, please. i'm begging you please, please. But I am excited for today because Allie and I are doing a joint episode. We're having a lot of fun with it. You guys might have been able to tell from the title. I don't know. I'm not you. Yeah. What do you read? I don't. But maybe. Well, but before we get into that, I did just want to remind you all of a very happy holiday giveaway. Um, We love you very much. And to enter the giveaway, you're not going to know what you're going to get because that would just ruin it. Um, so just know it's a surprise. But it's good. It's good, but it's a surprise. Yeah. And don't ask. But to enter, make sure you're following us on Instagram. Share our post about the giveaway on your cute little Instagram story. Heck yeah. Even if you want to screenshot it and post it yourself on your own feed. I mean, hey, I'm not you, girl. Yeah. I'm not you, but it's okay. And you will get extra entries if you share multiple posts. So that's cool. We would love that oh so much. And then just shoot us a little message if you if you do it and make yeah. sure we see it and everything. Um, also, show, show a little screenshot or so if you're rating and reviewing. Heck yeah. That's huge for us. I know we talk about it all the time, but it... You know, as much as we love it, the algorithm loves it more. And the algorithm is how other people find the ATFTC fam to join. So that's huge for us. You can leave it anywhere. It does not have to be on Spotify. It doesn't have to be on Apple Podcasts. It can be anywhere that you listen. Just show us a little screenshot that says you did it. Yeah, just just let us know. But we're, we're sending all the kisses. We love you guys oh so very much. Yes. We... Uh, 
honest, I'm not even kidding you. Like, this is probably dorky to admit, but we read them all the time. Um, and we look for new ones all the time. So it means the world to us. And we do notice. We and see you. This is mm-hmm. a completely uh, two-woman show. This is a yep. two-woman production. We financed our own equipment. We recorded all on our own. We edited on our own. We run social media and all of the extra yeah. stuff on our own. So to see other people enjoy it is really, it's special because it's not, it's just special. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how else to say it. It makes it feel more like a labor of love. Yeah. Yeah. And we know that not all of you guys have Instagram, but you guys might want to enter the the little giveaway and yeah. we would love to welcome you to do that. So you can also email us um, and show proof of rating and reviewing and like send us just like a, just a normal email. Yeah. Let us know you're into it. And then don't forget, if you need that email, Allie always says it at the end of an episode, but also it's always linked down below in our link tree. So you can just click on it and email us, baby. Heck yeah. So let's get into what we're talking about today. Ah! I'm so excited. We thought to celebrate our 100th episode that we would give you something fun and different. Yes. And a little nerdy as we are. Of course. So today we're talking all about serial killers, baby. Serial. But most specifically how we classify them. You might remember a very long time ago, 92 episodes ago to be exact, we covered organized and disorganized offenders in episode eight. Yes. We covered psychopathy and sociopathy in episode 33. Mm -hmm. We covered women murderers in episode 41. And now we want to break down all the different kinds of serial killers and give you some real life examples of each. So if you guys remember Allie's episode on victimization of people with disabilities, she did this format that we thought would be perfect for this kind of episode where she basically talked about what can happen and then gave us little blurbs of a crime that obviously could be its own episode, but for the sake of an example was kept short. Yes. So we'll do that today with all of the different groupings or categories of serial killers and we'll each give you a little example. So that'll be good. We want to get into what makes them do what they do in the first place or just yes. just read what makes them tick and why they've decided to carry out basically the ultimate crime. So we've got four types of serial killers here today that we're going to be talking about. Yes. We've got hedonistic, visionary, mission-oriented, and power control. And a wee little disclaimer here that some of these categories overlap or somebody might actually kind of have a foot in each of them. They just lean more toward another one. Um, People are complex. These people are very complex. So it just follows that they're not going to be easy to categorize. Right. And we're not going to get too much into the nitty gritty. Like Abby said, we're going to give you like the TLDR version of it. We're going to give you the very brief overview but if you want a deep dive on them you gotta let us know yes and you'll actually be able to find a few easy right off the bat too so that'll be nice it's actually what we're gonna start with so we're gonna get started with hedonistic today hell yeah so to be hedonistic is to be devoted to the pursuit of pleasure Mm. which sounds super sweet and whimsical but it is not at all (laughs) okay at least not in this context it's not super sweet but (laughs) These people are your lust killers, your thrill killers, your comfort killers. And they do this because it brings them pleasure. Yep. That can be happiness, excitement, sexual gratification, financial gain, fill in the blank. Hedonistic killers share a lot of similar characteristics with power and control killers. 
Mm-hmm. For example, a hedonistic killer might get a thrill out of the kill because of the power that they have over their victim. So we'll be as specific to true hedonistic killers as we can be. Yes. So the first one we're going to start with, you might recall, is Jerry Brudos. Oh, you mean the shoe fetish slayer? Yes, I do. Nice. For the TLDR version, Jerry Brudos was a serial killer who operated in the late 60s and murdered four women to satisfy his sexual fantasies. He fantasized about having sex with dead women. He also had a fetish for women's shoes and undergarments. He was five years old when he brought home a pair of women's high heels from a junkyard. His mom scolded him and humiliated him when she found him wearing them. She ordered him to get rid of them. He, of course, as a child, did not. (laughs) When she later found him playing with them again, she took him outside and the shoes outside and she made him watch as she set them on fire. Nice. Good mom. So it's believed that this action sealed his attraction towards women's high heels and like this sadistic sexual way and also this hatred for her. Yeah. And then which translated to other women. So when he was a teenager, he used ruses to victimize teenage girls. Later, he escalated to attack women on the street, knock them out, and steal their shoes. Yeah. And then he'd sneak home with them. He escalated again and broke into a woman's home. And this time, he strangled her to the point where he thought she might be dead. He raped her while she was unconscious. But this was when he realized his ultimate fantasy was a dead woman. This aha moment or light bulb moment for many of these killers is the moment in time in which there's no going back. Once they've made this realization, it's become part of them. And they're always going to seek to satisfy this urge. He ultimately killed four women using some kind of strangulation, committed necrophilia. The true motivation, ultimately, was just to have a dead woman. After he got what he wanted from their bodies, he disposed of them. Right. But he is the ultimate lust killer. He was actually called the lust killer by Anne Rule. And he killed because he was sexually attracted to a dead body and what he could do with their bodies when they weren't able to protest. So he was the hedonistic lust killer. So he falls in that like that subcategory. Yes. It's also important to note, at least with Jer Bear over here, that for him, again, the killing them really had nothing to do with what he wanted. I think he he would have been killing them equally happy working as a pervy morgue guy. But like, it was that he could pleasure himself, that he could get this thing that he otherwise couldn't. And you know what? If they died, they died. Right. It was like they needed to be dead to do it, but it wasn't the act of killing them that made him happy. But he did kill because this satisfied a sexual need for him. It it scratched that itch he wasn't going to be able to scratch any other way, which is like the most disgusting way to put that. I understand. But really, it. There was no other way to obtain this. And so once he'd thought he'd had it, when he thought he killed a woman, even though he didn't, he was like, ah, yes, this is what I need to do. And then he set forth on that path. And then there was no deviation from that. That was his goal. So we'll switch gears to our next one. This is Belle, and I've heard it pronounced like Guns or Ganesh. So I'm going to call her Ganesh. Can't really ask her because uh, we're talking 1859. So can't really call her up. But she was born in 1859 in Norway, and then she immigrated to the U.S. in 1881 at the age of 22. Holy cow. In Norway, she had worked as a farmhand, and then once in the U.S., she moved from New York City to Chicago and worked as a domestic servant and then at a butcher shop butchering animals. 
she was a big woman she was about five foot seven 250 pounds she was broad-shouldered and she was not afraid of dirty work like she could absolutely hold her own good for Belle. a few years after this she got married okay she and her husband owned a candy store and they all lived happily ever after uh, they <laughs> owned the candy store but that burned down but then they received a pretty hefty insurance payout uh-huh. and then their home burned down and then they again got a big payout and then she said to have had two small children both with insurance policies and they both died oh bell and rumors began spreading about the poor woman with the worst luck in the world Carly. and then her husband had this existing insurance policy uh-huh. And she took out another one on him. These two policies overlapped by one day. Oh. One day where they were both active before the first one would expire and the second one would still be going. And her husband just so happened to die of a brain hemorrhage on the exact same day she would get the maximum payout on the day that they overlapped. Now, isn't it funny that the woman with the world's worst luck actually has some of the most unstatistical luck? Isn't it, though? It is. Isn't it? Isn't it? (laughs) With his death, she got five grand, which in the 1880s was a lot because today that would have us sitting pretty at about $150,000. Yikers. With this money, she kissed Chicago goodbye and she bought a pig farm in Indiana. Maybe because people were starting to catch on to her. I don't know. Wasn't there. But in 1902, Belle married again. Eight months later, he too died. This time, she said that he was reaching for something on a high shelf when a meat grinder fell on his head and killed him. Oh. Don't you hate when that happens? Yeah. You know, I always keep the meat grinder on the top shelf of the pantry. It is hard. It's There you go. But then it was confirmed later that she had, in fact, caused the blunt force trauma that killed him. um, But she did get another three thousand dollars from his life insurance oh my gosh in 1905 she's not she is not missing time you guys she does not wait 1905 she placed a lonely hearts ad in the paper and she had a gentleman call her a gentleman caller he went to her he wrote to his family and said that he'd be staying with her for a while and asked that they send him some things because he didn't have all of his stuff. He had gone to, like, test the waters. I guess right. he was just going to go stay with her for, like, a month and be like, hey, if this shindig works, then we'll, you know, we'll, yeah. we'll keep it up. Um, after that, his family didn't hear from him. They sent his belongings, and yeah. then it was crickets. When they asked her about it, she said, oh, well, he went back to Chicago. He wasn't planning on staying. But his trunk and all of his belongings were found in her home including like his most prized possession which was a very expensive fur coat bell and he wouldn't have left that behind hell no still not missing a beat in 1906 she posts another ad another guy answered he traveled to her with most of the money to his name he like withdrew everything he had and he was like ah yes this is the one oh he was never seen again but his stuff was all found in her home also in 1906, the whole farm burned to the ground. Again? And at first glance, everyone died in the home, including the children, which was very sad. But a search of the property unveiled several bags of dismembered human remains Oh, that they estimated to belong to 11 different people. Holy hell. It later came to light that she'd had an accomplice who later told all of the dirty secrets and said that Belle had been murdering people for whatever she could get from them. Life insurance, money they came with, the shirt on their back, any of their belongings, but they were disposable to her. She was just getting what she wanted. 
Right. And it's rumored that Belle actually didn't die in the fire and that the body that seemingly belonged to her was way too small to be her. So they actually believe that she set the fire, let her accomplice take the blame, like she framed him. Holy. And she disappeared and she started somewhere new. Because whoever they thought was her was likely somebody else. Right. That pretty much died in her place, which is awful. So Belle was, of course, a hedonistic killer who murdered for financial gain or financial comfort so when we see comfort killers this is what we're talking about she's making her life more comfortable her motivation was the money or the stuff that she would have only if the victim were to die she'd also be called a black widow yep this is yeah this is a pretty you know cut and dry example of hedonistic like she didn't care about the people she didn't care about the killing she didn't care about the fact that she was the one doing the killing it was just like what you got I can get how much for this? Seriously. All right. And she had just like perfected her craft. Yep. And she could have lived a very long life and gone and done that forever. Yeah. But she's definitely a hedonistic killer. Yes. And I would venture to say, well, you know, we may not have any evidence as to whether or not she lived through that fire. She's probably not alive now. So I have no problem calling her on that shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bitch. Yeah. 1859 birthday (laughs) anyway (laughs) so we're gonna switch gears now from the hedonistic motivated killers to visionary killers Ooh, visionary is very fun um but i'm gonna start with the fact that visionary serial killers are like a ridiculously small percentage of actual killers First of all, most killers are not serial killers. A smaller percentage of that is serial killers. And an even more tiny percent of that is visionary ones. But I'm going to start off this category with talking about hallucinations. I love that. Because visionary killers do so due to hallucinations, pretty much. We'll talk about it. So in order to understand that, though, we kind of got to tackle this beast first. Let's do it. Let's tackle them. Hallucinations. According to Medline Plus, and hey, they are a .gov. Okay. okay, (laughs) Hallucinations, which are mentally created, involve sensing things such as visions, sounds, or smells that seem real but are not. Hallucinations can range from seeing and hearing things that weren't there, like a little gnome that keeps telling you to pour Sunny D over your sibling, (laughs) to like more sensational things that aren't there, like crawling on your skin when nothing's there. You know what I mean? Oh, I'd gosh. hate that. When they did the like, did you guys? Okay, this is going to sound real weird. Well, well let's hear it. Some murder podcast. Okay. So hit me. When you guys were kids. <laughs> yes. Did anyone in your elementary school ever yes. come back with like weird like back games where they'd like fist up your back and then yes. they like do the little spiders all over your back. Oh thing. my God. And then you get chills. Yes. That's what I'm thinking of when I think of sensation hallucinations, except nobody's behind you, like making the creepy crawly spider feeling. You just feel like that. Oh, uh, people used to do the like, oh, I broke an egg on your head. And then yep. they like do the clap and then they run their fingers down. Ugh, yep. ugh. Don't like that. So anyway, okay. That was my weird childhood memory that was unlocked, but <laughs> That's what I think of when I think of like sensation hallucinations and hallucinations are obviously not a one size fits all. And they happen for like a shitload of reasons. Yes, most people know about the mental illness, schizophrenia, which usually has a variation of hallucinations and delusions involved. Um, But, you know, 
They can come from people being high or coming off of certain drugs. They could also come from like a high temperature fever and are often seen in grief. Yeah. And it's also um, a really weird combination of medications can do that too. If you have a reaction to it, that can be a telltale sign that you are allergic to that because you are seeing and hearing things you shouldn't be. Yeah. And so in that sense where hallucination is not just like a vision or just a sound in your head. Visionary killers often are doing so based off of a delusion or a hallucination. So frequently this reveals itself as like divine intervention where someone believes that like a god or angels or Satan and demons are telling them to do certain things. This also provides a foundation for the killer so that they believe it's a strong enough motive to do this act because they don't really want to. They're not like, oh, I want to go kill that dude. It's like, oh my gosh, God is threatening my life and I have to go kill this guy. If I don't do this, what else will happen? I have to do this. Right. So it's not so much an act of choice as it is a reaction to untreated mental health. Very sad. Very sad. As you can likely imagine, this leads to a tremendously wide range in motive, voices, and complex, and at times, incomprehensible strings of rationalizations and mental illness that leads a visionary killer to get where they are. Further, it's often seen that visionary killers can be very remorseful when they sort of touch base in reality again. Which is just awful because it's at that point that they realize what they've done. It's done. Yeah. And it's too late. Ugh. But actually, despite the fact that the not guilty by reason of insanity plea works like literally less than 5% of the time it's used and it's used in like a ridiculously small amount of cases anyway. um, If you were going to see that, a visionary killer might be a really good example of that. These people aren't stable. They're not like planning out in their little planner what day they're going to go kill someone. It happens because their mental health is deteriorating and something is telling them that they have to. And they feel called to do that. Like a call to action. Yes. Oftentimes these individuals, if they're found not guilty by reason of insanity, they are still sent away. They are still like incarcerated in a sense, but they're often done so in like a psychiatric facility where they can get the actual level of care that they need um, because jails are not psych wards and they shouldn't be treated like it so um i wanted to talk about a few examples one that is very well known would be the son of sam so i know very little about this case okay um i've listened to like maybe a podcast on it might have read a few articles on it so so son of sam well okay his name is david berkowitz david david ew david ew uh And, of course, he was known under the alias of Son of Sam. There was also, I think, like, the 44 caliber killer was in nomenclature for him, but whatever. David. David was born in 1955, but put up for adoption from his bio mom because she had him out of wedlock. Mm. And in the 1950s, that wasn't so good. So David pretty immediately got adopted by a couple, a loving couple, Nathan and Pearl Berkowitz. I love Pearl. Pearl is so cute. Pearl. The two were both from the Bronx in NYC. So he was straight to the big city. I actually don't know if he was born there, but that's where he grew up. There you go. Uh, The two ran a hardware store and Nathan spent most of his time there pretty distant. So um, adoptive dad was, you know, kind of an arm's length kind of guy. 
Mm. But David and Pearl, super close. She loved him. She like literally adored him. And it sounds like she maybe let him get away with more than he should have. Um, but David otherwise didn't really seem to like much in his life. He didn't like school I, while he was big and figured out he, pretty quick he could bully other kids from that. He mostly just pretended to be sick or like skipped school entirely. And Pearl was like, oh, that's okay, baby. You can stay home and hang out with mama. Yeah. You know that sound that's like, you'd have to do something really bad for me to not like, like killing any like guy. You can't kill any people. Like, that's what I imagine Pearl to be. <laughs> but um, she's like, you'd have to, like, say a dog made you do it. <laughs> if, right. I mean, for Come me on. to not believe you and be mad at you. Please. <sighs> but um, shortly after when David was seven, he was hit by a school bus, Ooh. which resulted in a traumatic brain injury, as you may imagine. Uh, yes, that always ends well for everybody. Yep. And hey guess what shortly after that he got really interested in arson okay so mcdonald triad who yep mm -hmm. is he in the bed still i am are the animals safe i know so he'd burn some ants and start little fires pretty much everywhere he went well it's terrifying and just so we don't get pissed at adoptive parents they did take him to a psychotherapist good but at 14, David's world shattered when Pearl, his adoptive mother, died from a battle to breast cancer. Mm. In the year after Pearl's death, David fell into a deep depression. His grades and attendance got worse. And when Nathan, the adoptive dad, remarried, things just didn't get better. Oh. Apparently, stepmom was more reclusive than Nathan, which seemed like a hard record to beat. So David started to like live and create this fantasy world that he just like isolated himself to. Like born out time. of grief, just couldn't yeah. handle the one person that was in his corner not being there. Right. Now his stepdad has replaced his mom probably in his eyes at his young juvenile eyes. Yep. With a woman that is not like his mom at all. No. He's like, I'll just live in my own world then because it's nicer here. Yep. I like it in here. I get to talk to the dogs. Oh. So at 18, though, and this is actually really positive, David joined the army, essentially to escape like his home life and other lack of social supports. But he did so well with that structure. He did really well with the routine and the structure and sort of the rigidness of military life. So in 1974, David was honorably discharged. Um, he came back to the Bronx after doing some time in Korea and he was like, you know what? I'm going to go to community college. And he did. Good for him. I know. Except this all tracks really well so far. Minus the little fires. Except. Oh, okay. Um, now that David was out of the army and living on his own, he was entirely alone. He didn't just isolate from family. He didn't see them. He didn't live with them. There was nobody there to say like, hey, bro, what the fuck? And someone, it seems like, like him going from 100% of structure with little time yep. that you dictate yourself to 100% of your time that you dictate yourself was horrible. Yes. And further, he didn't get along with the people he was nearby. So like his neighbors said that he would instigate like petty little fights. Oh. And then eventually he would like threaten them oh, no. and they'd have to call the cops. So oh, like no. all of his neighbors knew him. The cops knew him. He was not like sunshine rainbows lollipops gumdrops you know but 
around this time, David actually tracked down his bio mom and sister. Oh, and he actually started talking with them, which was like a nice little reconnect. And that lasted really well until he found out that his mom gave him up for adoption because the bio father uh, pressured her to. And then he cut both of them out and never talked to them again. So, oh, that's really healthy. So we handled that situation well. Really good processing skills. So cool. Re-enter his arson love over the next three years. He would set over 1,500 fires in New York City. That is so many fires. If we just take a minute and do like the basic math. So let's say he did 1,500 exactly. That's 500 a year. And in case you're wondering, that's like 10 a week. So he was setting fires every day and then some. I've said this before and I'll say it again. When we talk about the number of times someone has done something... Find me something you've done 1,500 times in three years, like 10 times a week. That isn't eating, breathing, sleeping, shitting. Can I be honest? Go ahead. This is nasty. I don't even think I brush my hair that many times in a year. No. No. Girl, I got curly hair. I'm not supposed to do that. Like, uh, no. I don't think I've washed my face that many times. Like, that is not. (sighs) Yeah. So anyway, uh, that's a lot of fires. It's just a lot, you know? Um, One thing that I do think is cute is that he would write meticulously about them in his diary. Like, where it was, how he started it, how big it got. So, like, his blueprint. Yeah. Awesome. No, he'd literally be like, this is so cool. On June 17th, I said... (laughs) Oh, no. He called himself the Phantom in the Bronx of his little diary. And that always made me laugh because I'm like, oh, this really is your entire head world. Like, we're just living in your brain, aren't we? Yeah. So... Around this time, David became obsessed with the occult. He read texts from the Church of Satan and was pretty immediately convinced that he was being controlled by evil demons. However, it wasn't until David moved to Yonkers, New York City, that he really felt like he was being possessed. And if I may, Yonkers would be an amazing sister restaurant to Hooters. (laughs) The owners of the rental unit that David had had a German shepherd who barked incessantly. And David believed this dog to be possessed by the devil or demons, depending on what source you read, and that he had to move out because the barking was instructions on how and who to kill. Oh. Yeah. So David did try to move out at one point, but when his next apartment had more howling dogs, David was like, ugh, fuck it, it's a sign. The devil just needs me to kill people. I can't get away. It's not that people don't control their dogs it's that no matter where i go it's gonna find me right and that's satan that's not a dog barking at the mailman oh that's you just feel bad for him that he lived like that's terrifying if you believe that and you're alone and you're all alone you don't even feel like you have family and you're perpetuating that yourself because you're reading into it and you're like researching it and you're convincing yourself and you're feeding the illness yeah, it's not great. And there's nobody there to say like, hey, bud, where's the ground? Like, mm-hmm. are you touching base in reality at all with all of this? So truly, it, it just sucks as shit. I don't even know what I was going to say. But um, during his reign of terror, if you will, he murdered six people at least. He injured 11 more, including a woman that he shot point blank range in the face in mid daylight. Oh, yeah. And he wasn't even captured that day. Oh, no. 
David also wrote plenty of taunting messages to the police, explaining to them how he loved to kill and taunt them with threats that he wouldn't stop until they made him. Eventually, he did get caught, and after being sentenced to a life sentence with the possibility of parole, which was never granted, by the way. Good. David converted to Christianity and became a pacifist. Okay. But between you and me, I'm glad I didn't have to stick around to see what God was telling him this round. That'll do it. So I think that it's pretty clear that David was not well mentally and that the reason that he killed was not because he was dying to kill someone, but, um, you know, the dogs and Satan made him do it. But he was ill and he heard voices that told him to do so and they were going to follow him and he was compelled. Right. If that didn't do it. I think another example of a visionary killer that is a good one would be Herbert Mullen. Ooh, tell me. Herbert, who I'll probably call Herb, because I think it's fun, was born in April of 1947 in California. Ooh. Fun fact, Herb's killing spree overlapped with Ed Kemper's for two years. It was quite the time to be a woman in California, I was I just guess. thinking that. Could you imagine being in California at that no, time? <laughs> oh, I wouldn't. No. I'd say, I'm yeeting. Bye. Bye. <laughs> oh, no. Can't. Anyhow, it wasn't until after high school when one of Herb's close friends was killed in a car accident that his mental health started acting up. And it is common for mental health to surface when a large event like that happens to someone. We call it a trigger. But Herb started building shrines to his friend and eventually um, was admitted into the hospital for his mental health because no. it got so bad. I will say this. Um... If you didn't have a shrine to me and be put in a hospital because of your love for me. Are we friends? Were we really best friends? I mean, I, you know. Well, here's the thing, though. And I struggle. That's fucking devotion. I struggle with this because I would have been in the car accident, too. And that's the problem. (laughs) We would have been together. (laughs) So... But it's like, if you don't have a fucking shrine to me, and every, and I'm saying every room in the house, I'm oh, not, yeah. I don't need no one room bullshit. Oh, hell no. No, What, because no. you only love me in there? The back of what the about in closet? here? Go fuck yourself. What You're about watching in here? TV. Okay. Let me watch too. Just, just, it's all of it or none of it, okay? Point my picture at the screen. I have to know what happens to Raymond. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Anyhow. That's really sad. Yes, it was not good. And obviously... Herb just sort of spiraled. Anything that was like divination was important. And his friend, who is now dead, like it just spiraled. But by the time that Herb was 25, he had been in at least five different mental health hospitals. So there was definitely something underlying and this kicked it off. Yes. But he wasn't 100% completely mentally healthy. And then. Right. This pushed it further. Right. So then by the time he was discharged, Herb was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, which, fun fact, was accelerated due to his use of LSD and cannabis. Okay. So another reason that Allie and I are always like, you know, take your meds as prescribed. It's because there's a lot of things that can fuck up your meds. So absolutely. Tell your doctors things. Anyway, somewhere along the line, by the time Herb was 25, he was living back with his parents after being discharged. And he had a hallucination or a delusion that nature requires blood sacrifices to stall earthquakes. Meaning if he if blood wasn't shed, earthquakes would happen? Yeah. If we remember, we're in California where there's hella tectonic plates. So that's not quite the case, Herb. Um, mm. But 
Also happening in history at this time was Vietnam. So he believed that earthquakes weren't happening because we were spilling so much blood in Vietnam. So enough blood was being shed over there. Right. That it's saving California. Correct. Okay. Yes. But in 1972, his birthday fell on the anniversary of a major earthquake. Herb was convinced it meant something. So from Herb's American perspective, where the Vietnam War was slowing down, he knew that he had to take it upon himself to start killing people here to keep up the blood sacrifice numbers so that we don't get fucked by an earthquake. So he's trying to keep up with a major war. Yeah. Killing. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh, because he has to. Because if he doesn't, we're all going to die and he's actually doing this for us. Wow. Yes. So during Herb's active time... He killed 13 people in four months. Wow, that's quick. An example of one of his murders was Lawrence, quote unquote, Whitey White. Oh. (laughs) When Herb confessed, he said Whitey looked like Jonah from the Bible and sent him telepathic messages that said, hey, man, pick me up and throw me over the boat. Kill me so that others will be saved. And that was a a telepathic message. His eyes didn't say it. His lips didn't say it. His brain said it right to herbs so he's not even feeling like somebody told him to do that to this man he's saying this man is telling him to kill him yep he's like you see me kill me you see it like i'm fine with dying i know you're doing it to save others you can kill me so it's justifying it all he's like well he's asking me to do this so he's asking i have a reason like we don't need another earthquake what am i if i'm not helpful right okay (laughs) thank you herb um, so Herb was eventually caught and convicted. He was given a life sentence in prison and ample mental health treatment, like ample. That's just so sad. Officially, Herbert Mullen was convicted of two counts of first degree murder and eight counts of second degree murder. Herb died in August of 2022. Wow. Of natural causes at the age of 75. Wow. Yeah. So I think that's a good example of more very in your face like mental health getting in the way and causing this i don't think that anybody who's grounded and mentally well thinks that killing people prevents earthquakes but if that's the the vision and the message you are receptive to hearing that's what you're going to hear right and you know keep in mind like even david became a pacifist like he got the treatment that he needed and he was like you know what yes okay i feel really bad i'm going to dedicate my life to being like a decent human being for the rest of it Mm -hmm. herb was like i'm being good i'm helping other people by preventing this so you can kind of see where it's not like a malicious attack on people as it is like this is for some greater good well and that's not un i mean it is unlike mission oriented but it isn't unlike it in a couple different ways right so let's talk about mission-oriented because do it. these are the people who are killing in an attempt to rid the world of a group of people that they've deemed the villains. Yes. So you have to understand that in their minds, these killers are the hero. They are the one that you should say thank you to yeah. because they are serving their community. They're serving a purpose and that's it's for a reason. And they've decided that based on their own self-serving and biased ideas that the world would be a better place without fill in the blank. Their victims will fill whatever that cr- criteria is, be it sex workers or those who are unhoused and transient, 
It could be only people of a different race than their own. It could be only people of a different religion. It could be a different financial status or sexuality or only women or only men, you name it. If they feel like there's somebody beneath them that the world would be better without, this is this is the category here, mission-oriented. Yeah. And they're different from visionary killers because visionary killers are hearing voices they feel compelled and ordered to carry out their crimes they're often very severely mentally ill but for mission-oriented killers they're likely perfectionists but they're very impulsive they've often lived in the area that they kill for a long time and it's why they feel both this obligation to kill those that they've deemed unworthy but they also feel like they have the right to do so because this is their place right and it's really truly the for the greater good kind of killers like i'm doing what i need to do right and it's very important that you look at the motivation in these because some killers can seemingly be a mission killer when they're not so for example let's take jeffrey dahmer not a mission killer yeah he didn't hate young gay men no and needed to rid the world of them he murdered young men in the 70s and 80s until his capture in the 90s but he drugged them he assaulted them he killed them and in some cases he committed necrophilia and even cannibalism but most of his victims were african-american and it could look like he was mission-oriented to primarily kill people not in his race he was not on a mission to rid his neighborhood of people of color he lived in a primarily african-american neighborhood and right. he hunted for victims in his own neighborhood. And there's theories, too, that his victim choice was based on poor policing in those neighborhoods. And so he was able to get away with that for longer. And if we do a deep dive on Jeffrey Dahmer, we'll definitely talk about oh, that. Oh, yeah. Um, but his victim choice was more, most likely a result of availability and location and was not at all about ridding the world of anybody. He himself was gay. He was not on a hunt to get rid of gay men he was not right. hunting young people like i would need to get rid of people that are young or anything like that his motivation was to satisfy his own sexual urges and i'd probably categorize him as a hedonistic lust killer yeah because his he wanted a sex slave he wanted somebody like dead not dead but like drugged enough where they couldn't say no but somebody who was 100 percent entirely submissive the other thing i'd put here is that Again, we talk about this sort of like greater good vibe in both a visionary and mission-oriented serial killers. But if your offender can sit there and say, I thought this through, I killed this person because they were this, that is too logical and frankly too like mentally together to pretty much be considered visionary. Visionary would be like, well, God told me. And they'd be right. like, okay, but why this person? And they'd be like, no, God told me. Like it had to be this or yeah. whatever the, the case was. And that is one of the major differences between the mission oriented and the visionary. But I've just told you what a mission oriented killer is not. So let's talk about one who is. Hell yeah. And this is Gary Ridgway, also known as the Green River Killer. Gary Ridgway was born in 1949 and he grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. He was the middle son of three boys and his parents were often pretty combative with each other right in front of their kids actually. Mm -hmm. Gary's dad worked as a truck driver and he would often complain about how many sex workers there were and I'm sure he did not just call them sex workers. Um, yeah. But he just spoke of the disgrace and the filth that they 
brought with them and how awful it was to have them around and everything. And so we had this kind of like negative image of women from his dad. And then his mom, I would venture to say, sexually assaulted him. He would have wet dreams until he was about 13. And his mom insisted on like hand cleaning him. Uh, Which uh, fused this love and hatred for her. And at the same time, it confused the shit out of him in terms of how he was supposed to feel about intimacy and attraction. He loves his mom because it's his mom, but why is she doing that? It's very, very confusing for and him. Mom and mom and dad love each other, but they fight each other. But it was it was yeah. very chaotic, combative, abusive, you name it. So he got married pretty young, and he went right into the military. But while he was away, he frequently used the services of sex workers, yeah. and he got really pissed off when he contracted STDs, but he still did continue the use of those services and once he was back in the states he was said to have adopted his father's ideology of hating sex workers but yet he still didn't stop going to them paying for sex but he would gripe about not wanting to pay them he had this like love hate relationship where it was like he likes getting to fuck because well he's human i guess but so angry and disgusted by the women themselves so it was this really like (sighs) odd dynamic and he later confessed to killing 71 women that's too many his victims were either sex workers young runaways or women using drugs and this was throughout the 80s and the 90s until he was caught in 2001 he was a truck driver also like his dad and he killed them either in his truck in his home or in the woods and he would revisit the bodies afterwards like after a couple days and then he would commit necrophilia oh after he'd confessed he said that he'd kill them because they were both easy to pick up and he hated most of them oh but a little fun fact here ted bundy was already incarcerated at this time and he was consulted about building the offender profile when this was going on oh theodore he actually like aided investigators in their hunt in that he was like well if he's revisiting the bodies you're gonna you're gonna want to wait till one's dead stake it out and he'll come to it yeah like he'll he will flock to it you don't need to to a flame you do not need to seek him out find the body leave it you'll find him and you'll find him which was pretty groundbreaking stuff uh ted bundy's such a fucking oxymoron but anyway (laughs) but yes but definitely that gary ridgeway while it was convenient for him and while he lived a lifestyle that was very much on the road he was a truck driver so he wasn't spending a lot of time at home he spent a lot of time in truck stops right he had access to sex workers but he hated them so it was both he could get what he wanted but then he could very easily kill them and he felt like he was doing good because he got to rid the world of them because he hated most of them and they were scum in his eyes and so it kind of served a dual purpose for him but he didn't necessarily feel like he was doing wrong by doing that because it's just a sex worker in his mind um and if i'm i may a little modern day anecdote for gear bear here go ahead if you don't like starbucks stop paying starbucks stop going to starbucks go somewhere else i know your money's green dude you didn't have to go there no and they're raking it in the same as if you were anybody else so you you didn't need to 
fraternize with the sex workers if you didn't want to i love starbucks i'd love to go i love to give them my money and i love to give them little tips and say thank you so much for my fun little coffee beverage it's the only thing keeping me fucking sane today here's my seven dollars but i don't claim to hate them and then like rob everyone i go in correct yeah so anyway but you still get your coffee sure do but then after that you're like Oh, wait, actually, fuck you. I forgot. Correct. Oh, okay, okay. Maybe. Mm, mm-hmm. <sighs> Logic, you guys. It's hard. Simple. I thought a fun little tangent of an example for a mission-based killer would be Dexter. Woo! You know the one. The one from the TV show, Dexter. You know Dexter. the one that I have his autograph because I love him? Dexter, that I hardly one? know her. That one. That one. <laughs> I was waiting for that. Now, I know Allie can talk a lot about this. Hence the autographed poster in the pod loft. But I thought it could be fun to just add in like a fictional example. While there are many examples of missionary killers in reality and some, frankly, a little too close to home between between serial killers who target homelessness, sex workers, queer or people of color to religious mission killers that essentially end their life to end the quote unquote enemies as well. I would consider all of these to be mission based killers. But you know who we pretty much all know of who is? Dexter. Like, the serial killer that kills killers who kill. Yeah. That's <laughs> like the a guy. smelly smell that smells smelly. smelly. The serial killer who kills killers who kill. Um, <laughs> Dexter essentially would help to solve the crimes during the day, and then he would allow himself a little bit of murder for being good at night. But he would only do that on the grounds... That he is killing someone who is essentially more morally corrupt. That it's okay because he's getting rid of this kind of person who is worse than him, even though they're doing the same thing. And I know what you guys are thinking. Some of you are like, but wait, Abby, Allie, ATFTC family. I remember in like season one and two, especially where Dexter would have these like little visions of his dad. Well, that's not the point, you guys. Okay. (laughs) Because (laughs) no, I'm kidding. But seriously. It's easy to make it look like visionary, but he's not having hallucinations of his dad telling him to kill certain people. Right. When his dad was alive, it, you have to know the show, okay? Um, and if you haven't watched it, please Probably, pause this. Go ahead. We'll wait. Only watch seasons one through four. Just that's my personal take on it, but really only watch seasons one through four. But anyway... um. His dad was a police officer, adopted him from a crime scene, the crime scene that his own mother died at. So it was pretty upsetting. He was a toddler. Yeah. Dexter started to show signs of being a killer. And his dad was like, shit, I don't want him to be in a hospital forever or in prison forever. So what can we do? Oh, if he has to kill somebody, let him satisfy this urge on this mission basically of killing people that have fallen through the cracks in the justice system that should have been incarcerated that weren't that didn't get caught what have you so it's sort of his own justification for killing them which is definitely like it's mission oriented no doubt because he's ridding the world of them and right but it isn't that his dad is like his vision or the the little puppet on his shoulder telling him what to do It's more like he runs through what his dad might say to him in like morally confusing questions. Right. And I think a great example of this, right, is if you were to sit there and say, okay, who do you kill? Dexter could say, I killed these people. Mm -hmm. 
this kind of person. Because I, I need to kill. A person that I deem makes the world a worse place, mm-hmm. which frankly, out of all of the logic here, I think he's on to something more so than German shepherds being Satan. But what do I know? But if you have a serial child rapist out on a technicality. Yeah. Our justice system can be pretty good, but it doesn't get all of them. No. I'm just saying, if you got to take one out. I mean, who's... I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to do it, but like... (laughs) Jeffrey Epstein. (laughs) I mean... I mean... He he didn't kill... He did kill himself. He um, did. I mean No, he did. No, for sure. Um, With everyone else's hands. So anyway, uh, that's kind of where I'm getting at. Like, the son of Sam thought that dogs were forcing him to kill people. This man's was like, you know what? I'm going to kill people. I'm going to kill these people. Yes. And so that was his sort of mission. And he would look like he, that was that itch that he right. had to scratch. And it was like, I'm going to take this route with it so that it is serving a purpose. And where earlier we talked about how oftentimes like perfectionism comes into play. Obviously, Dexter is like <laughs> the king of premeditation and planning to clean up that crime scene. Yes. He's just not impulsive usually. Right. So I think that he's a pretty good fictional example. Love it. And a fun fact here is I think a lot about the hierarchy of morals within the offender population. It's fascinating. Just CJ girly things. Um, (laughs) And mission-oriented killers are a really great example of this, I think. Whoever they have to take out in their head is the scum of the earth and deserves it because they did fill in the blank. Or they are fill in the blank. In Dexter's example, it's killing people who are serial killers. In Gary Ridgway's case, he was killing people he thought were making the world a worse place because they were sex workers. So, I don't know. I thought that was just a fun little, you know, media example. I like that. Of a mission-based killer. I love that you did that. Thank you. So, our fourth and final category today is power control killers. These killers experience gratification from exercising complete power and control over their victims. Often, but not always, inflicting pain and torture and drawing out the death process because it is about the yeah. process. It is about the fear. It is about the the terror. It is about the pain. It is about the begging. It is knowing that they are 100% in control. They hold all of the power. The victim is at their mercy. And these killers often have feelings of inadequacy and low self-esteem in life. And it's through these acts that they believe that they regain their power and their control. They get the power that they feel that they need. It's something that they can have control over. Yeah. So one example we're going to talk about is Jane Toppin. Jane Toppin would also be regarded as an angel of death. So we'll talk about that a little bit. But she was born Honora Kelly, which sounds beautiful. Yeah. She was born in 1854 in good old Boston, Massachusetts. Her mom died when she was very young of tuberculosis, and then her dad became the the primary parent for her and her siblings, and her dad was just a rotten, vile man. He was abusive. He drank like a fish. He was not at all present. When Honora and her older sister, Delia, were six and eight, respectively, their dad just surrendered them to an asylum for indigent children, which was like this all-girls orphanage that, like, horrors awaited them. Great. Good. He also surrendered his older daughter to a psychiatric asylum. He never saw his kids again. Could he have gone to the asylum? 
Could he have been the one? Yeah, exactly. Could he have taken that? Anyway, sorry. That frustrates me. So he washed his hands of his kids and went on and did whatever it was that he wanted to do. Honora's sister and Jane, Honora and Jane, Finkel is Einhorn, Jane is Honora. Yes. Um, the sister, Delia, became a sex worker and then Honora ended up working as an indentured service servant. And Honora ended up working as an indentured servant for the Toppin family in Lowell, Mass. She took on their last name to put distance between herself and her family. And then she eventually enrolled in a nursing program. So she tried okay. to make good on it on the surface. Yes. Now, she was known by her colleagues as really sweet and kind. And so they they called her Jolly Jane. And so that's how she got the name Jane. And of course, she had the she had taken this other last name. So now she's Jane Toppin. Okay. She often worked with patients that were elderly. A lot of them were very sick. A lot of them were on the brink of dying. Right. And she would experiment on them. She Ugh. toyed with their medications to see what would happen. She fudged the numbers in the charts that she kept. She would play with the doses of morphine and atropine to see what would happen. And so she'd load them up on one and take them off of another and look just to play. She just played. Ugh. And she got joy from seeing them drift in and out of consciousness. And some of them became conscious enough to realize what she was doing and then she would exercise her power again and put them out again and it was this like high that she got right from controlling them like puppets so she left cambridge hospital and she began working for mass general hospital which is really cool um because that's like a great hospital yeah and she worked there but yeah. don't but don't worry she was fired within a year because she was messing with medications oh, good. go figure so when she probably figured out that she wasn't going to get a job at any reputable hospitals to be able to do what she wanted to do because she's already kind of got this like mark next to her name of like what right. is she doing because a lot of people die around her and it's just a little weird she became a private nurse oh so she would go into the home and work with patients and this was also for people who needed in-home care so a lot of times th this was not just like your average broken arm broken bone thing right um she was dealing with a lot of end-of-life care she was accused of theft amongst other things while she was in the home of her parents so just th check that box to mm. throw that in her little her little <laughs> category there she's an asshole um <laughs> but she i'm serious but the asshole category she, yeah yeah but she poisoned and killed her own landlord girl his wife and then her own foster sister listen if i may i know the rent is too damn high but you ain't gotta, you gotta murder over that shit that's what i mean but she's just anyone because she could just poison them with medications because right. she had access to them and she toyed with them so she murdered this elderly woman okay and then her husband employed her not knowing that she was the nurse that killed his wife like she oh didn't, my he gosh. didn't know that the nurse caused the death of his wife he right. probably thought that she died of some other reason and so he's like well now i need somebody in the home and he employs jane and jane's like cool Sick. she moved in to take care of him she moved into this home <sighs> she poisoned and killed him his sister and his two daughters Holy so she hell. wiped out a whole family with medications she said later that she wanted to, quote, have killed more people, helpless people, than any other man or woman who ever lived. Oh. And she would sometimes climb into bed with them as they died to, like, get the closest view possible 
of them <sighs> of them alive, dying, and then dead. She would even sexually assault some of them as they died. Ew. And they would come to and realize what no. she was doing before she would put them out again. And she got so much gratification from holding Ew. all of that power. And she claimed in court that she was sane, but a court found her insane. Yeah. And she was committed to an institution where she died in her 80s. Got it. So it's likely that because she had no control in her childhood, she had no security as a child, that she needed to have the ultimate control. And it just turned in this really evil, sadistic way for her. But she got off on having being the one with all the cards. Right. Ugh. Well, let's get us started on our final example here, which is a really good bookend. It is, because it's also a really good transition to our next episode but anyway okay. mm. um we're gonna talk about ted bundy oh yes so finally another well-known example of a power and control motivated serial killer is our friend ted bundy otherwise known as theodore cowell if you didn't know that i didn't he was born that way okay anyhow um ted bundy is a horrific serial killer who was primarily at large between 1974 and 1978 Ted grew up relatively normal, but his childhood was entirely based on a lie. That lie being that Ted's parents were actually his grandparents and his quote unquote sister was actually his mom. He was born out of wedlock in the 1940s at a time when that was totally like not okay. And young women had to like pretty much decide if they wanted to be socially ostracized or get an abortion or figure out whatever the fuck that looked like. And his mom went to a basically like a boarding place for pregnant teens in Vermont where he was born. And then New Englander, huh? Yes. And brought him back to Philadelphia with the rest of the family where he then didn't find out until he was like an older kid living out near California. That that his sister gave birth to him. That his sister is his mom. Yeah. Okay. So that's like super great. That's a little confusing. And then it was only confirmed for him in his 20s. Like, he had to go back and track down his birth certificate to see. But damn, were they abusive to him? I mean, they did what they could. Damn. Um, yes and no. They took care of him. His sister got, you know, like. Right. Not be a mom, but be in his life. And was he fed? Were clothes on his back? Were they mean to him? I mean, again, this is like. So. The very furthest bird's eye view of this that I can have. The only thing that I've heard of from his childhood is that his grandfather was apparently pretty violent. I didn't hear of anything specifically aimed at him. Um, There was one really creepy incident when he was three and he put like knives all around his like aunt's bed or something like that. And but he's three and like he's just sitting there with him like smiling, waiting for her to get up. And he thought it was so funny. But like, is that just like a a kid being creepy because they're kids or is that because he's Ted Bundy? We don't really know. Mm. The only other thing that he really had to face as a kid was his grandmother's depression. Mm. Well, quote unquote, mom, grandma. She had clinical depression so fucking bad that she literally was subjected to like electroshock therapy in her brain, which was not something they really did unless they've run out of all other options. So she was bad. Like, Mm -hmm. her depression was bottom of the fucking barrel. That's tough. 
And now I'm not a psychologist, but I can pretty much see how this would like create a spiral of someone who felt out of control. Like everything that you thought was stable turned out to be a lie. And even Mm -hmm. that was kind of like explosive and mentally ill. And then you find out that your, your mom's your sister and your sister's your mom. And it's just confusing. And so the crime spree could be attributed to not having control at any other point You'd in his life. Think. Okay. It almost seems like a really good precursor to some of these issues. Mm. There are accounts of animal cruelty, stealing, and rapes before Ted would even begin to kill, and there are suspected murders before the ones that he is convicted of and charged. Mm. But he loved the process of it. The fact that anyone got hurt in the middle, he didn't really care about. It was a side effect of what he wanted. Like, he wanted unavailable people. So, for him, it was interesting because he couldn't take someone who he talked to for more than 20 minutes. They were too humane for him. But he wanted someone that he could terrify the shit out of. That he he wouldn't feel bad about. Terrorize. Yeah, that he so if he talked to you about, for a half hour and saw you as a person, you're, you're no good. You're off limits. Quote unquote, no good. Wow. Yeah. So all I can say, you guys, is personalize the fuck out of yourself. I can't wait but, to hear you cover this. Sorry, I'm going to ask a bunch of questions as if we're doing that right now. So I think it's really interesting. And also there was a huge element of sexual sadism. He also had, uh, how you say, narcissistic personality disorder. No. Which we'll talk a lot about in depth in the actual series that I'll be doing. <laughs> hey. But um, <laughs> a really interesting thing about NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, is unlike sort of the stereotype it gets where someone's like full of themselves and they think they're all that, that is one half of the narcissistic coin. The other half is you put on that air because you hate yourself so much that you think it's the only way to convince people that you're good, that you're better than, that you actually are these things you want to be. And then because inevitably you fail in comparison to like the God you build yourself up to be, then you further feeling like shit. So So you hate yourself so much that you're an ass. Right. You're like, at least you'll maybe you'll like this ass if I make it look like I like him. Right. Okay. So it's it's a clusterfuck. But For Ted, well, so a quote from Ted was that the big payoff was actually possessing whatever it was I had stolen. I really enjoyed having something that I had wanted and gone out and taken. So essentially, like with the thefts, Ted liked having that thing because it was stolen. He didn't want that thing because it was that thing. He didn't try to find a fancy, expensive watch because it was something that he wanted to have. It was right. It wasn't about the Rolex. It was about that it was his Rolex and now it's mine. Okay. Yeah. And so the shock for most people, I believe, is his ability to fit in. For someone so incredibly intelligent, like Ted Bundy did go to law school. He got in tight with like decent, relatively big politicians on campaigns. And Ted literally worked at a crisis phone line and saved tons of lives. And when I say this man's the biggest oxymoron, I fucking mean it. So for every life he saved on the suicide crisis line, he took away. In a more heinous and terrifying way. Great. And I, you know, I know that he's relatively handsome. I do think when he has his unibrow, it makes him look like that seal from Finding Dory. (laughs) But he was average. He could blend in. Brown features, brown eyes, brown hair, brown eyebrows, light skin. He was the kind of guy that like, he would never do it. Like, right. Ted, my good friend Ted, 
Because he had such an air about him. But the flip was that he right. got off on the power and control. It was my arms broken. Help me get my sailboat. And then you get into the car and realize that there's no passenger seat. It's I want to watch your face when you realize that this good guy is not a good guy. Uh. And I mean... Don't get me wrong. He started with smaller crimes, petty thefts, stuff like that. But it freaking escalated. And there are estimates. He was. These aren't confirmed or charged. But there are estimates of up to like a hundred women. Oh. He was actually charged with 36, I believe. It was somewhere between 20 and 36. But an example of this is like one young woman that Ted murdered. He sodomized and killed with a piece of her own metal bed frame he was so rage filled he broke off a bar from her metal bed frame and that was his weapon so like he wanted the process he wanted to defile and humiliate and violate any way he could and it was that bit of it and that's why he did it. he didn't care if they died eventually he would go back and like Frequently, he would perf- he would commit necrophilia with the bodies afterwards, but I don't think that was the main purpose. For him, it was like, I want to watch your face fall. I want to see it in your eyes when you realize what's happening. Right. Oh, those are the worst kind. Um, if that wasn't enough, by the way, he did decapitate his quote-unquote special victims. Oh. Yeah. And sometimes uh, he would keep the skulls and uh, commit necrophilia with them, too. So not great. Okay, little (laughs) Kemper-esque. But when Ted was caught the billionth time, because you'll hear about that, uh, he was finally securely arrested and taken to trial, which resulted in the death penalty. Uh, Ted, before his execution, did a lot of talking. It's part of why we know that for him, the thrill was the control. The thrill was the power. The thrill was that he controlled everything that happened to her. Before he blamed it all on pornography and then died at 7 a.m. So, ooh, stay tuned for more on him if you're interested, because we will have a deep dive on Teddy Boy coming up next. I just realized that we bookended this entire episode. We started with Jerry Brudos, who we just yep. covered. We're ending it with Ted Bundy, where we're going... Oh, yeah, I love we did it. good. So that wasn't on purpose. I kind of like that. I'm pumped. <laughs> yeah. Allie and I usually have a lot of just like fun coincidences that work out for us. And I'll take it. We love it. So those are your four categories with some explanations as to what defines those and some of the offenders, real and fictional, that you have heard of. Yes. And a little bit about them. So we hope that you guys enjoyed that fun episode 100. Ah, again, don't forget about the giveaway. Um, And hey, if you wanted to email us or message us, tell us which kind fascinates you the most or that you're most interested in learning about. Are you curious about the ones that are doing it for their pleasure? The hedonistic killers? Are you interested in the very small percentage of visionary killers that are so mentally out of touch that they're being forced to do it by unseen forces? Um, Is it the mission-based killer where you want to know why they think certain populations are the scum of the earth? Uh, Spoiler alert, I don't know, but a lot of them do. (laughs) Or are you interested in power and control, which are the ones that keep me up at night and also uh, fuel the criminology in me to figure the fuck out what's happening? 
Yeah. Because I don't know if you can tell, but power and control is definitely where I'm fascinated. Um, I don't I don't understand hedonistic. I'll be honest with you. Like, I understand it conceptually. I get it. But like, there's no part of me that would take any pleasure in seeing that. So that feels super foreign to me. Well, and I also think that hedonistic and power and control, there's a lot of overlap. I think yes. that you can double dip a lot in those because... If it isn't about the power and control that you have over them, some of the ways that a hedonistic killer goes about committing their crimes can appear to be for the power and control. Right, because they're trying to get, they're like trying to maximize the amount of pleasure they can get with the kill, which can draw it out and make it seem more like it's about the fact that they're in charge and doing the thing. Like you take Jerry Brudos, right? Right. So let, if we had. Imagine, if you will, Jerry Brudos and Ted Bundy next to each other. Yeah. Jerry Brudos would hang a victim and he'd leave because he didn't care about watching her die. It wasn't the process of her death that got him off. It was what he could do with the body afterwards. Ted Bundy would probably lower her a little bit so she can touch the ground, catch a breath, hoist her back up, lower a little bit. Like he would... He, he would, would toy with he her. Would he would enjoy the process. He would enjoy that part where Jer Bear is going inside having a sandwich and he's coming back out when she's already dead because that's when the fun begins. The fun hasn't right. started yet for him. So I think like they can appear at first glance pretty equal. That's why it's the motivation matters so much because you have to know what they're thinking. It's not enough to see what happened. You have to know why. Right. And usually once you know why, you figure it out pretty quick. And there you go. But so um, we'd love for you guys to follow us on Instagram, obviously. Uh, Um, Enter the giveaway, obviously. But Abby, if they wanted to go on our Instagram, if they wanted to see our reprieves that we have funny little cute memes and funny stuff, you can kill an hour on our page. You really can. Um, Resources, victim information, all of the people, places, things that we talk about. Where would they go for that Instagram page? You ask great questions. So they could open up their little Instagram app or go on instagram.am on your web page and type in about time for true crime pod with periods in between every word. So that is A-B-O-U-T period T-I-M-E period F-O-R period, T-R-U-E period, C-R-I-M-E period, P-O-D, because podcast was too long. Don't forget to enter the giveaway. You need to be following us on Instagram and share that post if you have an Instagram. Again, if you don't, email us. But if they wanted to email us, Allie, where could they do that? So if you wanted to send us an email, you would do that to about time, the number four, T-C at gmail.com. So that's A-B-O-U-T. T-I-M-E, numeric for T-C at gmail.com. Oh, you guys, I'm so excited. Don't forget also, check out the Red Bubble if you want to look at some stickers. I just did some fun ones for the 100th. Woohoo! And we can't wait to see you there. But I really cannot wait to tell you about Ted Bundy. I'm like about to burst. I've been, <laughs> I have so many hours of this man's life in my head. It's not even funny. So I can't wait to see you next week. Oh, we're so excited. All right. If I do look at my clock for the hundredth time, that was (laughs) about time for true crime. Bye.